Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Black Ink Red Film. I'm your host, Stephen, and with me tonight, as always, is... Your other host, Stephen. And tonight, we're going to be talking about a classic, truly a classic. We have Who Goes There and The Thing. Welcome to Outpost 31, as we do, in fact, ask questions such as, well, who goes there? Who goes there? And what is that thing? Exactly. We will have all of these questions answered for you tonight. So why don't we just get right into it? Stevie, why don't you tell us a little bit about Who Goes There? So Who Goes There was a novella written by John W. Campbell Jr. back in 1938, published in Astounding Science Fiction magazine. It's the story of a uh, scientific expedition in the Antarctic that happens upon a spaceship buried in the ice that they determine was probably buried there for millions and millions of years. I think someone determines maybe upwards of 50 million years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their efforts to extract the spaceship, they inadvertently blow it up, yep. which is a little bit of an oops moment in the story, if you will. Yes. Not a good look. But they also, not too far away from the uh, now blown up spaceship, find something else frozen in the ice, the apparent passenger of this vessel, uh, which even through the ice they can tell is something not human. It's described as having three red eyes, being absolutely hideous, having like blue worms for hair. So they extract it from the ice, or they bring it back, any block of ice, to the camp. It eventually will thaw out. And at that point, they realize that this creature is capable, is alive, and capable of taking over the identities of the individual members of the camp, replicating them perfectly. And the story really then becomes a matter of, well, who goes there? Which one of us is a real person still? Which one of us is now an alien life form? And really this group of, I think, 37 people trying to determine who's human and who's not. Right. So the interesting spirit of this novel is there is some horror in that, you know, there is some people that are killed and there's actually some murder as well. But the bulk of it is the scientists trying to figure out who's a monster and who's not a monster. They they right. learn pretty quickly on that this creature can replicate other life forms and they are coming up with a variety of tests to try to figure out who's still human, who's not human, and then things go south. It's really a tale of distrust and paranoia, to jump ahead to our kind of themes a little bit, because again, this creature is capable of replicating things, leather life forms perfectly, and they have, it's a double danger for the for the team, because number one, they don't know which who among them is real, and they also realize if this thing actually gets out of here, leaves the station, say turns into a bird and flies away, and gets to the main population, the entire world will be in danger. Right. So let's say a little bit more about the novel. So the there's actually two versions of the novel that I read. I read Who Goes There? And then I read Frozen Hell, which was the recently kickstarted edition, which apparently was an earlier version of the story. Most of the differences in that story, from my recollection, was in the beginning of the story, where it actually describes them coming across the ship and blowing it up. Whereas in Who Goes There, all of that is described in flashback. Yeah, the Frozen Hell story, is kind of, if, if you're a fan of Who Goes There, you should probably give Frozen Hell a look. Yeah. I don't think it's quite as good. I think the additional stuff of the material, excuse me, the additional material at the beginning is just, 
it plods. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can really see why the why who goes there was the published version. I mean, interesting story behind Frozen Hell. So I guess this, uh, from what we understand, it was discovered pretty much in a box at Harvard University. Yeah. By someone in 2018, by someone looking to do some research into Campbell's work, and it just was a pure accident they found it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's cool. It's a good piece of history. If I were to pick between the two, I would say stick with who goes there if you're just looking to... Uh, yeah. It's regarded as one of the great sci-fi stories of all time. I mean, it's obviously had a long legacy. It's still regarded in the top 100 of all time, if not even better than that. It's a good story. I I have a few picking points with it, but on the whole, I think it's it's definitely worth a read if you're into... Specifically, if you're a fan of The Thing, right. the movie's The Thing, and if you're into the genre itself. One of the other things that's interesting, and we'll get to the movies in a second, but one of the other parts that's interesting abilities of the creature, if you will, is it's also telepathic. So yeah. as you're, as the characters are next to the creature, the creature's reaching out to them, giving them visions and whatnot. I would say that that is mostly used as a plot point for discovery and explaining the capabilities of the creature. So these people that have had these visions and have had these dreams can now describe what the intent of this monster is and how it's trying to reach out and, and what the uh, perils that await the crew are if, if the thing is truly uh, able to manifest. But yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's not, as I, I don't recall that is brought up in any of the movies, but that's an interesting thing that happens in the books. Do you mean the telepathy part? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it ever really is. I don't think it's... Um... I, I don't think it was deemed necessary in the movies would be yeah. my guess. Yeah, they just um, gotta show it. And and really it's it's not a huge it's not a huge uh, gain in the novel, the novella, excuse me. I you know, one of my big problems with the novella is the monster to me in the, in the novella never really feels all that threatening. Mm-hmm. It's I mean the novel itself is well written, kind of creepy, but not really all that scary. The monster never really feels extremely menacing, mostly because once it's true identity is discovered it's pretty easily dispatched mm-hmm. and it's just and i think campbell's writing style is odd where he'll it'll sort of drone on for a little bit then and then this guy was found with a knife in his head oh i'll be darned yeah so it's kind of an odd it's a it's a weird writing style he has it, it is interesting the monster so i would yeah i would say this about that the the creature in the book when they're fighting it has classic monster traits so there's right. fangs and there's right. like you said it's a hideous this creature. for hair. It's a hideous, yeah. and you know they talk about how frightening it is. But to your point, the creature's mo, if you will, is waiting out the humans so that it can you know assimilate them all. Right. So it doesn't have to fight the creature, and that's I think one of the big differences and themes yeah, of some yeah. of the movies. But yeah, it's basically just waiting, waiting out the humans. Right. It's clearly a superior intellect because the thing builds a spaceship in the shack, which they all go right. discover at the end of the movie right. or at the end of the book. So yeah, so the to, the spoiler alert on this one is the novel ends with them realizing that they've left one of the other dudes out, Dr. Blair, I believe it is, yeah. out in the shack in the cold for the last week. And when they get out there using spare parts, the thing has created an anti-gravity belt and atomic power and replicated a miniature blue sun. So clearly the thing could have just built a laser gun at some point and gone and taken them all out. But, oh, sure. But chooses not to. Yeah. yeah. Well, or just he missed laser gun day at alien college or whatever it right, was. Right, exactly. 
what else do we want to say about this novel? We talked a little bit about Frozen Hell, how that one, they actually do go digging out the craft. They still do blow it up, but you get a little bit more exposition about the process of MacReady and those guys going out there into the ice. MacReady, the man of bronze. The man of bronze. So yeah, so <laughs> if you haven't read this in a while, in the in Who Goes There, he's called the man of bronze. I think I did a count of like 13 times. Right. MacReady is described as bronze or bronzed a total of 16 times in the novel. Yeah. He's referenced as, oh, tall, bronze, the bronzed man of bronze was... And then when we went back and I did a similar search in Frozen Hell, it's not mentioned at all. There is one instance of the line, there was a slight tight smile on his lean bronzed face in Frozen Hell. So at some point, Campbell punches up the writing a little bit with with some of these adjectives. Well, it's it's a little weird, too, because you read Man of Bronze many times. And two things occur to you. Number one, I'm not sure how you maintain a good bronze tan in the Antarctic. So True. good for MacReady. Second, after you've seen the movies, you've read the, the story and then go see the movie you're expecting instead of Kurt Russell to be Hulk Hogan playing him and something <laughs> like that instead. Um, but another odd thing that I noticed in Frozen Hell, I don't think maybe bronze, Man of Bronze or Bronze is mentioned maybe once. Yeah. But there's a strange reliance on the word queer. Oh, throughout yeah. Frozen Hell, in the classic context of it. Uh, it just seems like maybe Campbell didn't have a very reliable thor- a thesaurus, that he might have mixed up <laughs> some of his terminology a little bit, but hey, it's so it's a little weird what was there and then left. <laughs> right, right. I think we did a word count on that one as well. I can't remember what our thing came out to. The word queer or queerly appears six times in Frozen Hell. So that's the novels. We're going to talk a little bit about the spinoffs and some of the treatments because there there have been some additional work, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on the show. So we'll get to the part which I'm sure you're all waiting for, which is to talk about the movies. So Stephen E., why don't you give us a filmography of works that have been influenced by The Thing or Who Goes There? I'm sorry. Yeah, let me talk. I'll do my, what has been my, one of my normal roles as I put my glasses on here is to run down the timeline of films and also to, I want to talk a little bit about some additional legacy regarding the original film in particular. And I'm so, usually taking this opportunity to sip whiskey in the background. I noticed doing it, that, so yeah. please do. All right. So unlike The Mummy and a few others we've done, there were not 200 Thing movies, so this shouldn't take very long to get through. Not as long. Not as long. So it all started in 1951 with The Thing from Another World, or often just referred to as The Thing, The From Another World's kind of fallen off. Produced by Howard Hawks and possibly directed by him. There's always been some controversy mm-hmm. whether he or the director of credit, Christian Nyby, did it. This is the first one that set things on its way. And we've had this discussion with other, other movies before. This is a Universal Pictures production. What fate awaited all Universal monsters in the 40s and 50s? Is it, once again, Abbott and Costello? See, here's why the thing was a clever animal. Mm. He knew what his fate was going to be if he stuck around too long. So instead of facing the wrath of Bud and Lou, he went back and into the ice for at least another 30 years Got before it. Universal brought him back. Smart thinking. So that takes us to The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, 1982, a, the first official remake of the original. Although, interestingly, it's less of a remake of the original as it is a more direct adaptation of the novel Who Goes There. The, thing, the 1951 Thing from Another World was a very loose 
adaptation of the novel, mostly Mm -hmm. for budgetary and technology reasons. Carpenter's 1982 version was by far the most faithful adaptation. That then brought us to 2011, and the prequel, cleverly named The Thing. The Thing. And there you have it. Not to be confused with The Thing. It was just another The Thing. Okay. In fact, they should have titled it Another The Thing. But it's a direct prequel to the Carpenter movie, not to the events of the book. That is correct. Although, yes, yes. That's sort of, I'm I'm running that through my mind, and it's sort of a little bit of strange that it was a prequel to the events of the movie that was an adaptation of the book, but more toward, yeah, Yeah. you're right. A couple others to tie on to that was 1972. We got Horror Express, a Spanish production starring Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Telly Savalas. And I'll just say right now, if you have a movie that has Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Telly Savalas in it, you've already made the greatest movie ever made. I think you've got two out of three Bond villains in there as well. Yeah, you, yeah Cushing never was, but yeah. yeah so yeah. there you go. This is an, if you were a man or woman of certain age and you grew up watching late night TV in the Bay Area, this was a mainstay on Channel 2, particularly on Creature Features. Creature Features. Scared the hell out of a lot of us when we were a kid. It's not a direct adaptation, nor does it claim to be, but it effectively storyline-wise is the thing on a train. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a very good thing. If you haven't seen it, it's a fun thriller. Give it a look. And then also we had in 1993, season one, episode eight of The X-Files gave us Ice, which was very, very close to yeah. the thing, particularly Carpenter's version, with, I believe, Parasites were the the monster of peril in the... We would call that a reskin in the gaming industry. There you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's basically the history of the films, going all the way from the 1951 first adaptation to really the 2001 prequel. So one of the things that strike me about the movie, so if we talk about both the novel and the movies, one of the aspects of both that are, that make the thing the thing, if you will, is the inclusion of the setting. So like all great horror films, the setting plays a huge part of it and the Mm -hmm. isolation of the Arctic being out there in the cold. So that, that runs through, I know I didn't see the one on the train, obviously. Clearly, the influence of a creature that is taking on the personas and or mannerisms of the other characters of the book influenced the body snatchers, right? Mm-hmm. So we have that. But really, in my mind, the the thing that made Carpenter's The Thing much more faithful was the, well, one, there were several scenes that were just like, like right out of the pages. Yeah. Some of the experiments that they did characters obviously but but the introduction of the paranoia the the looking at each other and evaluating each other and trying to keep each other isolated and you two need to watch each other as you go off into the hallway i didn't see as much of that in the original howard hawks version to me the howard hawks version the thing is literally i mean he is a stalking creature in that he's effectively a mummy or frankenstein or any other shambling right although it does have one of the greatest jump scares i mean even watching it recently uh, well, it's it's still a great movie. Yeah, yeah. What would you say, Stephen E., we talked a little bit about this off air, but, you know, when, when I think of Frankenstein, we have certain images in our mind. Dracula, you've got the cloak and the fangs. If you were going to cosplay or do <laughs> be the thing for Halloween, how do you dress up? Well, I think, first of all, I would just go and play MacReady and be a man of bronze. As, man of bronze! As I'm often described by people anyway. Yes. But otherwise, I mean, you have two options. Again, this is a generational thing. You have the cla- the costume from the 1951 film, mm-hmm. the famous James Arness vegetable alien 
costume. So you have that. He's always been an iconic figure. Um, if you're going off the Carpenter one, so I think it's tricky and why the Carpenter, one of the reasons the Carpenter monster is so great is it doesn't have a shape. It's right. a, a constantly evolving and metamorphosizing pile of goo, basically. Mm-hmm. So, but nevertheless... Which is um, faithful to the novel. Which is faithful to the novel. But you have iconic images from the film that uh, Rob Bottin's great special effects. You have you know, the slimy dog head. You have the splitting face. You have... The spider, the walking spider head. Mm-hmm. I, you've got, and I've got action figures to prove it. So there have <laughs> been plenty of iconic images, and of course, I think Kurt Russell's McCready character has been iconic in itself. We've seen a lot of, yeah, a lot of merchandising and things around him. That's probably easily one of his most memorable roles. Yeah, Kurt Russell's had a pretty good run with John Carpenter. They did well together. Yeah. Well, that's not hundred percent true. They made good films together. They didn't really make good money together, which mm. is sort of the. But we'll get to that when we talk more about the films. Yeah, I think Carpenter's the thing I would... We always talk about masterpieces, but I guess that's why we're talking about it on this show. To this day, though, probably some of the best practical special effects of any horror movie I've ever seen. I think the best practical special effects. I yeah. mean, this is films almost 40. It'll be 40 years old next next year. Right. And I have not seen any, you know, a sustained amount of practical special effects in a film that have topped it. Yeah. Um, and it's a big tribute to Rob Bottin, who... Worked himself near to death on the production of the film. Carpenter, of course, was great at directing special effects scenes. Mm-hmm. It also has some of the best jump scares you're ever going to see. Yeah. And some just truly remarkable sequences in it. So a lot of things overcome some of the minor plot holes in the film. It very much is a classic. It, it took people a couple decades to figure it out. But it actually has now become... And I, I rank it up there with Alien among the greatest sci-fi horror films. In fact, those are probably one and two mm-hmm. uh, for me. So in addition to the special effects, what do you think the legacy of the thing is? Like, why is it culturally important? Why do we we think this is still considered a classic? It's got to be more than just the practical special effects. This is a rare case where both the 51 film and the 1982 film are both really classics. Mm -hmm. Arguably generationally, but they both have their legacy. So the 1951 film is its own all right let let me put it this way so let me tell you about my most disappointing one of my most disappointing movie experiences ever you were probably in a theater with me at the time could be let's hear it indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull oh that movie sucked or the crystal skull and its king whatever it was called right the fourth indiana jones film so i remember we're, we're sitting in that theater and again i think you were there with me i have witnesses and stuff and you remember one of the really i guess it was the opening scene opening sequence where you know our beloved dr jones is running through running from the nazis i guess it was or whoever was chasing him and he winds up going into this atomic test site and he hides in the refrigerator just as the bomb goes off and he's inside the refrigerator and the refrigerator flies through the air and crash lands in the desert correct far-fetched sure but it's an indiana jones film we go with it at the end of that scene there is a truly great moment that I that gave me hope, and if you remember, he gets out of the he he gets out of the refrigerator. It's strange to even say such things. Indiana Jones gets out of the refrigerator, and he stands up and he puts his hat on the f- famous fedora, and we have this great shot of Indiana Jones, this hero of World War II, conqueror of the Nazis, 
standing in silhouette, staring out against this radioactive mushroom cloud blossoming on the horizon. And I got out of that moment, oh cool, this hero of World War II is now facing off against this brand new enemy, the Atomic Age. Now mm. we're going to have us a movie. And then the rest of it, he gets together with a guy who looks like Fonzie and he chased down this artifact that someone picked up at Autopic. Right. That's where America was at this time, in terms of where Indiana Jones was staring at, at that atomic cloud. So we'd gotten rid of the Nazis. We'd won World War II. There was peace. But we had some new threats looming on the horizon. We had communism. We couldn't, didn't know if we could trust our own neighbors, our own family members. You never know who the other guy was or if someone got to him. We had spies being picked out of the government at the time. We had this new threat of atomic radiation and, and nuclear power. We'd seen what it could do. And we also were talking about the space age. What lied beyond the stars? So these were really things that were now on America's mind in terms of the entertainment. The gothic horror of the 30s and 40s of Frankenstein and Dracula, they were no longer really a thing. I mean, hell, Abbott and Costello killed them off. Sure. So how scary were they? So the 50s, which are a really amazing decade, were launched with the thing, realistically launched with the thing in 1951. Through that decade, we saw more films about alien invaders. Yeah. The mid-50s, we got movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where it really got more into the storyline of, like, who goes the there. The blob, yeah. The blob, where, where now we have invasive species. We have we have aliens attacking us from spaceships. We also have a more invasive thing of taking over our bodies. Mm-hmm. I Married a Monster from Outer Space is another one. That lurid title, really good movie. We also had the giant radioactive monsters, starting with Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and, of course, Godzilla. Yeah. Universal came back into the picture with Creature from the Black Lagoon and that new franchise. And even that monster had kind of an environmental slant to it. Mm-hmm. And then in the late 50s, little production company near bankruptcy called Hammer came back into the picture and, and rebooted the classic Universal monsters. But through the early and mid-50s, you got a lot of these films that the thing influenced and were really affected by the times, where we now had these new threats that we didn't know what to make of. Influenced a lot of Twilight Zone episodes in the later right. decade as well. The thing from another world is really interesting. Not only is it really, probably if not the first, among the very first of these films, it really is kind of a, it's a good transitional film because it's still in many ways, while being a sci-fi film, feels like a, a, like a, a gothic horror film at the same time. So you've got a lot of things happening in shadows. The monster is stalking people. You never really get a good look at the monster. You never get a close-up of the monster, in fact. Right. And you've got, you know, Howard Hawks, who is at the time easily one of the top five filmmakers on Earth, you know, behind this film, giving it still some of that 40s vibe. The characters are very real. So the thing is extremely important in that timeline, and then it really set the pace for what the other sci-fi and horror films of the 50s would feel like. You'll even hear, I mean, John Carpenter was a huge fan of the film. Your father, I think, had talked about it. It scared him to death. A lot of other filmmakers of a certain age, like John Landis, other people, they talked about how influential that film was. Ridley Scott, no doubt, had seen that film when he was younger. Oh, sure. So The Thing from Another World really was the the flag bearer for 30, 40 years of films to come. Do you think it introduced the radiation as a monster? Is that, or is that more of like the Godzilla influence. Well, the Godzilla, the, um, this was more, well, cause yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, thirties the, movie, they're, they're tracking it with the Geiger counter. That Geiger counter was right, effectively right, right. the, the three yellow barrels of its day. Yeah. 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 So that's a good point. Yeah. So it's when again, Jaws was Spielberg, right. no doubt was influenced yeah, by exactly. the thing also. 
we had the thing was more of the even even though the thing did not follow the 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 novel because they really literally didn't have the technology for the special effects and things at the time. Right. I mean, again, it was not a shape-shifting monster. It didn't take people over. It was as a stalking alien. Right. Really, the rest of the plot played out pretty similar to the novel. But anyway, th- this was the alien invader movie. Yeah. And again, this was symbolic of this concern about what lies beyond the stars. And also, there's a lot of paranoia in this movie. Even though they know what this monster is, they don't know where it is at all times. They don't know what it's capable of doing. Right. There's these great long hallway shots where you're, you're clutching to your chair because you don't know when something can spring out from one of those doors. Yeah. So there's still a lot, of, a lot of that theme in it. Yeah, when you get into the specifically the Godzilla films and them and a number of other giant insects, lizards, and things in the 50s, that's more of your radioact- your radiation and your, your nuclear accident uh films i'll have to uh i'll have to do the timelines i guess in my head because this came out in the 30s which the novel yeah or the uh, 38 was when the novel was published the story was published because there is a pretty big similarity to lovecraft's in the mountains of madness yeah with the you know taking place in the arctic finding finding and then waking up this alien cephalopods if you will that start attacking so right right yeah so i think even that was probably influenced well, They're, Lovecraft would have come before that, yeah. not by a ton, but yeah, he would have. Campbell would have had the chance to be familiar with that story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah, so the fifty-one movie came out. It did capture the the isolation, the alien threat. It was more of a plant-based monster in the movie, if memory serves. Carpenter's version, obviously, the paranoia, the shape-shifting aspects of the creature the intent that it can't leave that they have to you know that they have to sacrifice themselves to not let this creature out um what else we want to say about carpenter's version well so carpenter's again was the most faithful adaptation of the novel definitely in some cases like you said it replicates scenes almost identically i think in most cases it, it improves on things that were in the novel so in the novel there's this whole blood test process that they want to try to isolate they can figure out if it's who who's alien by doing this and the whole explanation in both versions of the novel is so convoluted that you're like, yeah, oh, boy, I don't even know what he's talking about, but I guess this works. They're sciencey people. They'll know. <laughs> and then ultimately the stupid test fails anyway. Yeah, yeah. So yep. it's kind of like, oh, that was a long way to go for nothing. The Carpenter version, the blood test they do in that film is wonderfully efficient and one of the scariest and most suspenseful yeah. scenes I've ever seen. It's a fantastic scene. So that's an example of where I think Carpenter and, and screenwriter Bill Lancaster actually improved on the original material. There's also fewer people in the Carpenter film. There's, thir- I think, there are supposedly 37 people in camp uh, in, the, in the novella, right? Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there. Like 15 turn out to be monsters. Right. Yep. In the Carpenter film, there's not even a dozen cast members total. So it's a very small group of people, which I think heightens the suspense even more. You don't have a l- bunch of red shirt yeomen running around that you're likely to be alien fodder and that is a big change from the carpenter film is a big change from the novel because the carpenter film does not have a happy ending it's a very ambiguous ending but yeah yeah, it does not have a happy ending and the monster is flat out terrifying and very threatening in in the carpenter film the the novel ends with they they're able to defeat the thing right at the last minute and everybody doing a oh that was close kind of moment right 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 um where we're mankind is saved but yeah in the carpenter does not leave you with warm fuzzies no no uh, you know again that was sort of a sign of the times i think 
from the 70s on through today, very few horror films have happy endings because got to franchise that thing. Yeah. Got to have more. Yep. The Well, even the 1951 film pretty much has a, it has a good resolution. Mm-hmm. You know, they kill the monster and then everyone is happy and then they radio in the headquarters or whatever and say, watch the skies or whatever right, that turns right, out right. to be. Uh, the Carpenter, the other thing with the Carpenter film that's interesting, it does not start with the crashed spaceship, the discovery of the spaceship. Yeah. That will happen in the prequel. They actually discover the Norwegian outpost that discovered the spaceship. So we actually come into the story late. It's like mm-hmm. the, it's like who goes there was actually the story of the Norwegian uh, facility. Yes. And then the Carpenter film picks up from there. Uh, which is, I think, very well done. And again, yeah, I think it's a, it's excellent. How I mean, they they did improve upon that part of it. I mean, oh they yeah. captured the spirit of the novel, but to to make it a more effective movie, I think the way they tightened yeah. that up, bookended it. And you know what's tragic about that film too, and you're probably aware of this, was that so we've agreed. And I think most of our listeners will agree that John Carpenter's *A Thing* is one of the all-time great sci-fi horror films. Mm-hmm. Again, I top two with *Alien* for me, and it was a huge bomb when mm-hmm. it came out. Huge bomb when it came out in 1982. Opened on the same day as Blade Runner. Mm. Both of them fell like frozen turds from an airplane. And both considered classics now. Yeah, yeah. And you know why it bombed? Why did it bomb? This was great. So, you're Universal Studios. You have this great horror film, although apparently the execs didn't love it when it when they made it. And you've got this slimy, nasty alien in an R-rated horror film. And you're going to open it. Two weeks after E.T. Oh, E.T. killed the thing. E.T. killed the thing. Mm. Not Abbott and Costello. E.T. killed the thing. It's really a sad story because, again, Carpenter, you know, this was his first major studio film. The studio had him set up for a number of huge things after that. Obviously, he worked his tail off along with his cast making this movie. The studio execs didn't get it. They had a horrible ad campaign around it. You probably remember the iconic poster of the, you know, it's the low angle shot of some human figure in a the parka, uh, parka the sparkly face and the sparkly face come to the parka. It doesn't look like a sci-fi film. Carpenter even looked at the poster. He hated it and said all they did, they all they had to do next was put a knife in his hand. Right, Because right. he was so pissed off about the poster. Then the critics killed it because at this time critics were already wearing out on gory and slimy special effects movies. So they were basically protesting this movie for the mm-hmm. most part. Gene Siskel gave it a really favorable review. Roger Ebert did not, and that was kind of the theme of what was happening for it. So the film died right out of the block, and it cost Carpenter a lot of work. He based, The studio, basically, Universal basically took him off a bunch of future projects as a result. took mm. him time to recover. But once it hit, like Blade Runner, I think once it hit cable, home video, yeah. another generation saw it, there was some separation between The Thing and My Bloody Valentine, right, the other right. films of the era. I think the appreciation grew from it. And again, it was a late developing, but now regarded as a classic. It just, it stuns me that this film, this may have been the most egregious case of horrible timing for the release of a great film and I, that I can ever remember. Yeah, that could very well be. And what's interesting about the thing, one of the things that are interesting about the thing is... That's a lot of using the word thing. While it has definitely influenced a lot of sci-fi and horror that we talked about and we went through your list... There hasn't been a ton of spinoffs and sequels. There's been some. Uh, we're going to talk about them in a second. Sure. But yeah, it's not like you don't churn out another thing movie every year like you do Dracula or Frankenstein and all that. 
Well, what took him, what, 19 years to make the prequel? Yeah. To the Carpenter film. Well, I mean, again, the film bombed, so that wasn't exactly going to encourage a lot of, uh, you know, um, a lot of follow-up and a lot of ripping off. Um, I, Alien begat the thing, ultimately. Right. Alien helped greenlight the thing. And after that, I think the, the sci-fi films that followed, very few of them ripped, quote-unquote, ripped off or were influenced by the thing. They were still being influenced by Alien. That's true. Well, why don't we talk a little bit? Well, we'll pause here, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about sequels and spinoffs. And yet we did have some sequels, prequels, spinoffs. Uh, one of the more recent one was the, what, 1981? No, two, 2011 film starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead in the prequel to The Thing. So this is a direct prequel to Carpenter's movie, and it really is the story of the Norwegian camp after they have found this thing and, you know, found the artifact, if you will, and dug it out of the ice. I think Stevie and I differ on the <laughs> effectiveness of this film. I thought it wasn't terrible. I I thought if somebody handed me a pile of cash and said, you're going to do, you know, do something with the Thing franchise, I think they did a pretty good job of capturing the shape-shifting nature it sets it takes place in the arctic there's a bit of paranoia there's a fair amount of paranoia as they start you know like who's been you know infected by this but really the movie becomes a little bit more like alien in that the thing is stalking things Malty is stalking the people and you know taking them out one by one and as we mentioned earlier that's not really the mo of these creature he prefers to like wait them out and just assimilate at their leisure did you enjoy the film Stephen E? I hated it worse than gum disease <laughs> and that's well here's the thing about it. so if this movie had been titled slime beast from mars and mm-hmm. it essentially was marketed as a ripoff of the thing I probably would have been a little it, it would have been probably a middle of the road sci-fi horror film like leviathan and what underwater Deep Star Six, those things like that. But no, it had to carry the weight of the name, the thing. And the major problems I had with it were number one, this is a completely unnecessary story. I get the appeal. So Universal did not want to do a remake. Smart. They didn't want to do a sequel because I guess too much time had passed. Questionable. They wanted to do a prequel, which on on the surface sounded good, except for one major problem. We already know what happened. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that the Carpenter film did so brilliantly, and kind of what like Alien did with the, the early scenes of finding the space jockey and things, the story of what happened at the Norwegian plant is told perfectly in about five minutes. Yeah, and it plays out more as we get further. So we really don't need to see the story because we already knows what ha- know what happens. It really the suspense doesn't work as well. There's there's one new discovery, and apparently the thing when it takes over or replicates a person. It cannot take inorganic material. Oh, yeah. So it can't take fillings, can't take artificial limbs, blah, blah, blah. That's cute. But there's a scene, and again, structurally it almost is the same as the Carpenter film, which is a problem. There's a scene in the middle of the film where to determine who is a thing and who's not, they go around checking to see if who has fillings and who doesn't. <laughs> Yeah. And it's it, it's not as effective as the blood test in the Carpenter film. It's not quite high drama. It's not high drama. In fact, one character has probably the best line in the movie. He says, wait a minute, I'm about to be killed because I'm the one who has good hygiene and I floss <laughs> or something like that. And he's like, you got a point, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a bad the, way to go. Yeah. And just the monster in the film is way too quick to the trigger 
to be able to reveal itself. Yeah. When if it played itself cool, it eh, it probably would have taken over the whole stupid plant. So it just it doesn't work. I know there were a lot of production issues. The the film the director had loftier intentions for a big spaceship scene where we reveal more of the thing apparently was like a captured creature by the pilot and then the thing basically broke loose took over the ship which now that I think about probably would have been a better movie but I think it's a miss I think and and fans hated it well so it's funny you mentioned that so we can spin off to another one of the spinoffs here so one of the interesting add-ons that was in the novel who goes there one of the recent releases at least the version I read was it had the screen treatment written by William Nolan the author of Logan's Run where he was actually apparently approached in the 70s to do a reboot prior to carpenter's version and so it's got his his script treatment in it about 15 20 pages and what he does with it is he changes up the mechanics of the monster a little bit so the monster is not completely replicating people it's taking them over but leaving a carcass in the wake so as they go through the space station they're finding these desiccated husks of humans and now oh someone's eaten Jenkins and so now mm-hmm. you know that Jenkins has been eaten he left his wrapper behind yeah. exactly exactly and the big finale does take place back on the ship so the big chase scene happens as they go back to the ship and face the monster off there which is how the prequel ends right. with Mary yeah. Elizabeth Winstead so there's kind of interesting similarities between those yeah. two yeah I'd, I'd found out fairly recently just as a coincidence of time I did, I did not read the treatment mm. Uh, just as a coincidence of timing that before Carpenter was brought into the 82 film, I'm sure there were a ton of treatments, including sure. that yeah. Toby Hooper, still the, hot off of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 74, was brought on to, re- to do the film first. And he had done a treatment, or maybe done a full screenplay, in which this it really played out more as like Moby Dick in the Antarctic, where there was like one Ahab, like maybe it was the Man of Bronze McCready as <laughs> Ahab, chasing this giant frozen alien beast. Kurt Russell could play Ahab. He would have been fine. He no, could play any character. Fine. I love yeah, no, the casting would have worked fine anyway. Yeah. But his, so his was yet a different take on it where he was just basically chasing this thing through the Antarctic like Moby Dick. And the studio apparently deemed it just really repellent and grim and unpleasant <laughs> and dropped him from the project. But So there have been a few different takes on the cla- on the novel. And again, I think uh, it's it's interesting that the remake was... The approach to the remakes were mostly we want to go back to the original book, not so much back to the 1951 film. Yeah. Probably because the 1951 film had already kind of been remade in a way with Alien. Yeah. And then the final, the final piece I'd like to talk about was the, the sequel that apparently is in the works. Right. The thing from another world sequel that's in the works uh there was like the first three chapters at the end of the frozen hell and this one is a sequel to the novel direct sequel to the novel i will look up who the author is and edit it in the working title of the novel is the things from another world by john gregory Betancourt. it's part of a trilogy of sequels to the original novel but basically what they're doing in that one is it takes place in modern day and they're they've dug up another ship and it's like oh there's another one and then they send off some scientists even just reading the first couple of chapters of it i'm already scratching my head now mind you i'm four chapters in or that's all they mm-hmm. published so who knows how that will eventually turn out but they're finding all this paperwork that was left by the original party 
that survived. Obviously, they survived and they killed it off and they kept it top secret. But then apparently even these papers were left behind because now they don't know any of the lore behind the character. So I don't know. I, we'll, we'll have to. I'll read if they have, if it ever gets completed, I'll read it. Yeah. Um, I read the first uh, few chapters, too. And I mean, it, it kind of, it's not terrible. It just sort of reads like fan fiction. Yeah. It, it strikes me as sort of the Jaws 2 approach to a sequel, which is just, oh, here's another one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, another ship. Oh, there's probably a bunch of them. And Ark's pretty big. So, and that's fine. It's it's competent. I'd like to see where it goes, but so far you're not. Uh, it's not doing anything remarkable. Yeah, I guess in in a in a part of this show that I've started to do um, inadvertently is well, if if the CEO of Universal comes to you and says, "Hey, I've got this thing franchise. What are you going to do with it?" I think the period part of it obviously it has to take place. I don't bring it back to America. I keep it in the ice. I would probably do like what they did with the terror, actually just keep people trapped out there. You know, AMC is the terror. Right. I thought that was fabulous. Oh yeah. So I would do it. It would be 40 years or whatever have passed. The whole mystery of what happened at, at um, outpost 31 has been effectively covered over in an area 51 style. Yeah. A new expedition goes out there and those who saw the 82 film know where I'm going with this. They, by perchance happened to find a frozen dog in the, in mm. the ice. And they're basically told, whatever you do, don't do anything with it until we get there. And then the authorities come back and the thing, wind, the literally the thing, the frozen dog gets brought on back a ship to take back. And basically at that point, it becomes the Demeter from Dracula on board a ship. So now you've got the isolation of a ship with the this alien, this alien life form getting loose and doing its thing. You could even make that if you wanted to do it modern with like, you know, a diverse young cast of beautiful people, you sure. could make it a found footage film. Yeah, like you could, you could you say could. that that whole outpost is kind of like Tunguska or. Yeah. 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 Oh or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is why it always struck me odd that universal decided it wasn't a good idea to make a sequel with the 2011 film, because there's a PlayStation two game called the thing, which is a well-told sequel to the film. There have been comic book adaptations that have mm-hmm. all done sequels. So it's not like there wasn't already material out there from which could have been... Or, well, maybe it wasn't at the time, but there have been sequels done in other, in other um, for media yeah. for the thing. So that's, uh, you can ex- you don't necessarily have to follow it up with McCready. You can just follow it up with yep. any number of directions. But I think the keys are you need the isolation, you need the paranoia, and you need to be a threat this thing could get loose if not in a wider yeah. audience of not contained. I mean even the X-Files one had that it's like we can't yeah. let this worm thing get loose yep. right well that's great so that was the thing we're going to pause here and then do a little bit of housekeeping okay so we actually did get one email from Mike Sheridan who writes in and says hey guys just heard the mummy episode effing sweet yeah baby threw me for a loop when you mentioned Bubba Hotep didn't think anyone else liked that movie and I don't know how many times I've seen it I love Bubba Hotep I am on board with that too I love Bubba Hotep he goes on to talk about and ask us if we've seen Lovecraft Country which I have seen and I did enjoy I have not read the novel so I cannot comment on the similarities differences or any of that but yeah I would say the other HBO show I just recently saw was 30 Coins and I Enjoyed that a little bit more than Lovecraft Country. Lovecraft Country just felt a little episodic to me, whereas, well, actually, they both felt a little episodic, but the theme just felt a little tighter in 30 Coins, so I enjoyed that. I have not watched, I I have Lovecraft Lovecraft Country on my DVR, I still haven't watched it yet, haven't read the story, I've watched 
sum of 30 coins. Uh, I've heard good things about Lovecraft Country, so like Mr. Sheridan, I would like to have the chance to watch it at some point if I remember it's there. Yeah, that's basically it from Mike. Uh, so, Mike, thank you so much for writing in. Yeah, and you. if I ever read Lovecraft Country, then I will let you know how I feel about it. Anything else coming on that we need to talk about? I don't know. I will say just one last note on the thing. So there's still a rumor that Bloomhouse is doing a, another a new reboot of the original film. Okay. Well, the Carpenter film. Some film with thing in the title. So we'll see. What, that was pre-pandemic. I think that was announced. So who knows at this point. But yeah, we allegedly will be getting yet another version of the thing. And we'll once again kick up all the big arguments about CGI versus practical effects. Because that actually... Fans of the thing, that's their biggest argument <laughs> with, yeah. with the with the films well honestly i mean I, I know i just mentioned it a couple minutes ago but if i were to do the thing i similar to how like the shape of water was really kind of like the creature from the black lagoon right i i think the elements of the amc version of the terror you've got the isolation you've got the the location you've got this mystical creature hunting these people so you don't have the paranoia per se but I think it does show you how how well that material works. Oh yeah, um, no, it's and and you know, Bloom, Jason Bloom has a pretty good track record. So if yeah. anybody's going to do it, yeah, well, there are a few others probably, but sure, I'm. It, we'll see what happens with that if it in fact does go through. Yep. All right. Well, once again, guys, we're Black Ink Red Film. Um, you can write to us blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. We're on the Twitter and all that. And what are we doing next? Do we know what we're doing next? Well, we've had some discussions, and perhaps I'll throw a few things out there that we've discussed, see if any of our loyal listeners in Poland and the U.S. have anything, <laughs> uh, <laughs> want to weigh in on it. So we've discussed Robert Bloch's Psycho. Yep. Which, of course, spawned some films, including this will put us in a position where we have to probably, we'll obviously rewatch the Hitchcock film and maybe have to watch the Gus Van Zandt shot-for-shot remake of it as well. Okay. Something to think about. That was terrible. Something to think about. <laughs> um, we've uh, we've talked about Jekyll and Hyde. Yep. We've talked about Jaws. We've talked about. I'm currently reading Darker than the Darker than you think. Oh, uh huh. Uh-huh. So, um, but that would be 40 werewolf movies. We could narrow that down to. I yeah. could get less than 40. And I then... could get us under 35. The other one, my girlfriend did buy me the other two Logan's Run novels, speaking of William Nolan. Oh, there you go. It's like Nolan's Search or Nolan's World or whatever, and I need an excuse to read those. So anyway, fans of the show, if you're listening and you have a suggestion, feel free to write it in. Otherwise, we'll just pick. Yeah, we're just going to go willy-nilly, and then uh, it's your fault. There you go. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.